Bibles to the book of Joshua, and we'll look there in just a moment. I appreciate the attendance of everyone, and especially to those who are visiting with appreciate you taking the time to come and worship with us this evening. And what we've been doing um, for most of our lessons has been looking to the Old Testament, looking to see what lessons we can learn from a time in which people were under a different, different covenant, but with the same God. And what we find is that that relationship, though different in some details, uh, is same in kind. And so the relationship with God has always been the same. God's always demanded the same things from his people. And what I want to look at this evening is a lesson about the sameness of God. It has something to do with that. And uh, particularly in an area where people challenge God's character. And too often people in defense of God's character uh, run away from the truths of the Old Testament. Who God was in the Old Testament. Well, who he was in the Old Testament is who he is today. You cannot run away from the God of the Old Testament to the God of the New Testament and, and, and somehow suggesting that he changed because by suggesting that, will you destroy everything he says about himself. That he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the book of Joshua, what we have is the story of the conquering of the land of Canaan. And it is, it is a devastating military campaign. Everyone falls before Israel. It is the story of Israel all the way from the time they leave Egypt. That, that's what Rahab referred to when they came up to Jericho. Is we, know, we know who you people are. And we know the God you serve. And we know what you've done to Egypt. And they also knew what had happened to Sihon and Og. And that reputation would continue to follow them. And people would fear them. And people would fall to them. And, and the devastation was total. In Joshua chapter 10 and verse 40, it says, Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor. But he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. It's devastating. That is not typically what we think of when we think of God. Right? If, if, if you're just talking about the religious landscape in general, when people get up and they talk about God, or more particularly, let's talk about Jesus, and, and they, they, they splatter God's name across their sermon, and what they're really doing is just preaching feel-good, modern day psychology and then putting God's name on top of it and saying here and we hope that makes you feel good and therefore we hope you come back and by the way hopefully you'll throw something in the collection plate they're selling God we're not here to sell God we're here to proclaim him and that means that we got to go to passages like this and we got to see what God looks like not just in the parts we like but the parts that make us uncomfortable and frankly the destruction of Canaan can easily make us uncomfortable the world doesn't help us out there because this is the very sort of passage and others like it because there's plenty. Let me just say there are plenty of passages like this. And the world takes those up and they say, see, this is the monster of a God that you serve. So you got fellows like Christopher Hitchens who was a very outspoken atheist in his time. He said, the Bible may, indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking in humans for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. 
But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. So that's his take. Is that what we find in the Bible is all sorts of atrocities. Those atrocities are commanded by God and therefore we shouldn't take, we shouldn't take it at face value. Let me just say at the outset, i got a couple more quotes with all of these guys who say what God did was wrong. My question to them is, what do you mean by wrong? You mean you don't like it. That's what you mean. And that's what any atheist means. When he uses the term right or wrong, someone who doesn't believe in God and who says something is right or wrong, what they mean is, I like this, I don't like this. Because once you remove God, you're the God. And that's it. And that's what we're going to see as we continue through this lesson. Sam Harris, who continues uh, to be a, a very outspoken atheist, an American atheist, he says, a close study of our holy books reveals that the God of Abraham is a ridiculous fellow, capricious, petulant, and cruel, and one with whom a covenant is little guarantee of health or happiness. If these are the characteristics of God, then the worst among us have been created far more in his image than we ever could have hoped. And so what he's saying is, it looks like to him when he reads through the Bible that the God is that God is the worst sort of human that you could imagine. Richard Dawkins maybe goes the farthest of all. He gets out his uh, thesaurus. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. He's got a vocabulary. This is somebody who looks at God and does not want any part of it, to be sure. And he looks at the destruction of people and he says, what, what's happening there, that's no different than Hitler. Right? So that's what they're saying. I think, you know, those kinds of words are upsetting it kind of makes me, when, when I hear somebody say something like that, I want to keep my distance. You know, How do you even spit those words out? How do you say that? But we need to be careful that we don't, we don't brush that aside as just so much prattle. Because that is, that is a prevailing notion. right? That is growing in steam and people are picking that up. The books that these men write are being assigned as college texts. For young people to read. And so we got to be aware of that and aware of the arguments that are being made against God's word and God's character and we don't need to run away from those stories. No, whatever God is doing, we need to embrace it. We need to figure out how to embrace it. We talked about that the other night. I'm not just compliant to God. I'm compliant in a way that says this is what I want. This is what I think is best. So how do we how do we come to terms with that in the in the uh, instance of God wiping out a whole people. Well, some people will say the only reason God wiped out these people is because he wanted to make room for his people. There's some truth to that. Certainly it tells us over in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. All right, So it's my people that I want this land for. And so he is giving them uh, he says, every place in which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. And so he takes us, as Joshua goes into the land, he takes us back to Moses and says, I'm fulfilling that promise. But go back to Deuteronomy 34. 
in Deuteronomy 34, just a few pages back there, and verse 4, the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. That's speaking to Moses, of course, as he was not allowed to go into the land. So, God says, you know, I am. I am making room for my people. But why didn't he just give it to Abraham when he was there? Well, one thing he tells Abraham is they don't deserve it yet. Their wickedness is not full yet. The wickedness of the Amorite is not complete as he gives them that promise. As he's showing him that land from Shechem. He says, it'll be generations from now. And then it'll be time. What sort of people were living in Canaan at this time? We get some clues all along the way. As God is giving the law, where they're back at Sinai, they haven't come um, to the land of Canaan as yet. And in the book of Leviticus, as he's revealing to them the, the instructions that they would need to keep once they get into the land, and even, even while they're wandering in the wilderness. But in Leviticus 18, he, says, he, he tells them all sorts of things that they need to watch out for. He says, um, beginning in Leviticus 18 and verse 24, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, and therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. Now, we're not going to read all the way through Leviticus chapter 18, but I encourage you to. I encourage you to read all the Bible. And I encourage you to read through Leviticus 18. It's an uncomfortable reading. It describes things that we don't even want to talk about as far as sexual immorality. They go as far as imagination can take you, and then they go farther. And you read through and you, you see the sorts of things that are condemned, whether it be incest or bestiality. All of those things are described. And he says, stay away from them. And then he says, now these are the kind of people you're going to meet in, in Canaan. So when we talk about worldliness, one of the things that I think we have to be careful about is recognizing that we do live in an immoral society. But that is not new. right? The immorality around us is nothing new. It's not even... It's not even uh, new in Jesus' day. It's ancient. And, it, and it's been there for so, so long. And so it is well established in Canaan when Israel comes in. And so he lays that out for You know, somebody read Leviticus 18 one time, and I was encouraging them to do a Bible reading, and they'd never read through Leviticus. And they got to 18 and said, Why does God even bring up the subject? Why even bring that up? Because somebody's already doing it. Right? That's what he's saying. He's not, he's not giving anybody ideas. He's saying, they're already doing this. And don't you become enticed by it. At first, you know, we might just go, how could anybody? They already are. And in fact, Israel will come to that point as well. As was referenced in, as we were about to take the Lord's Supper in Lamentations, what brought Israel so low is that they did these very things God told them to stay away from. Turn over to Deuteronomy 18 though. In Deuteronomy 18, and there in verse 9, 
He says there, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There should not be, a found, there should not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Uh, I cannot imagine uh, what it must take, what kind of mentality it must take to be able to do what these people did with regards to their idolatry. Their sexual immorality was part of that. We see that in Leviticus 18. But here, and this is something else that's addressed in Leviticus, but it's also addressed here, and it's, it's, it's brought together with that sort of witchcraft and that, that calling up the dead. Death was a key element of idolatry. So one of the things they would do is they would take their baby and they would, they would have an idol made of metal and uh, inside they would crank up a fire inside that idol until it was molten hot and there would be a cavity in the chest of that idol and they would put their baby screaming in torture into the chest of that idol and watch it burn that's who lived in Canaan God says that's, who, that's the kind of people you're going to come up against and he describes them in detail and says I want you to be clear as to what you're doing you're doing my work this is judgment that's coming upon God. God is not just moving them out of the way so, Israel's could come in, so Israel can come in. If that's all He was doing, He could have done that when Abraham came into the land. He said, no. They don't deserve that yet. But they will. They'll get there, I'm afraid. And so, He describes the situation and we see the horrors, the horrors that they were willing to get, engage in. Now, when we come to these atheists who say God is so horrible because He would wipe out a, a group of people and they think it's ethnic cleansing or something of that nature, these are the very same people whose primary objection to God is that when evil is in the world, He doesn't do anything. So says Sam Harris, Either God can do nothing to stop catastrophes like this, or He doesn't care to, or He doesn't exist. God is either impotent, evil, or imaginary. Take your pick. So to Sam Harris, I say, which way do you want it? Do you want God to be hands-off, or do you want Him to do something? See, what happens is, people say they wish God would do something. Of course, it's, there's always the irony of people who are very upset with God for not existing. And so, think through that irony. And they're, they're angry with him. Why are you angry with him? Because he doesn't act like I want him to act. I mean, really, that's what it is. And so they shake their fist. And he should do something about this. But I'll tell you what, when, when we start saying, I wish God would do something, we better be so careful. There are a lot of people who call for justice who don't realize they would be swept up in the fulfillment of that call. So many people get angry at what they think are atrocities that the other guy is committing. The world is full of people who hate our president. The world was full of people who hated the president before him and the one before him. And it's always been full of people shaking their fists at their leadership saying somebody should do something. And usually 
The very things they're angry at their leaders for is things that they would get swept up in the mix with. And so they say, you know, there's evil in the world and God should fix it. This is what it looks like when God fixes that. In Genesis chapter 6, that's what it looks like when God fixes that. In Genesis chapter 19, that's what it looks like when God fixes it. He doesn't do it quickly. And when we look around and we see evil in the world and we wonder, why is God not doing anything? It's mercy and it's for you and me as well. And we want Him to hold off. And we want Him to give all the time for people we love to respond and to turn around. And God did give Canaan that time. He gave the whole world that time in Genesis 6. He gave Sodom and Gomorrah that time in Genesis 19. So we need to, we need to appreciate that what this is, it's judgment. And it's judgment against a people that anybody, even Sam Harris, even Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, even they would look at this society and go, whoa, something ought to be done there. God did do something. I think what happens, though, is people look and they think God is love, right? That's what we know about God. It's what John tells us in 1 John he is love. And so this does not look like the activity of somebody who is love, whose, de- whose very definition is love. And so what people do is they run to the New Testament and they say, oh God, He's not like that anymore. You see, He used to be a terrible vindictive God, but now He, he had a change of heart. You know, He softened up a bit. And what they do is they fail to recognize they fail to recognize the glory of God both in the Old and the New Testament. They fail to recognize the mercy and kindness of God in the Old and New Testament. We'll talk more about that grace of God in the Old Testament tomorrow night. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 10, God says of Himself, but showing... Um, this is the, the reiteration of the Ten Commandments to the people after the tablets were broken. It says, showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's the God we serve. But, but He's also a God who is just. Who says in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 5, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What would you think of a judge who, what would you think of a judge who on the bench looked at people who needed help and showed mercy and gave them second chances? You might say, well, that's a pretty good judge. We need judges like that. What would you say about a judge who only did that and never passed out any sentences or any consequences for any evil? I'd say he needs to step down fast as possible. That's a useless judge is what that is. That's not, a, that's not a judge I can admire and it's not a judge I can love. Especially if I walk into the courtroom and it's my daughter who's been the victim of the crime. And I stand before that judge and he goes, you know, everybody deserves... No, I want justice. When I'm the victim, I want justice. And so the saints cry out in the book of Revelation, How long, O Lord? 
And it is not a just God and it is not a God we can love who says, I don't care about what they did to you. God cares so much about what they did to you that He is willing to take the punishment Himself so that the justice can be satisfied. He is a just God to the end. One writer wrote this. He says, I used to think that the wrath of God was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Think of Rwanda in the last decade in the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How would God react to such carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in some grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful, wrathful because God is love. God is, is trying to save people. And it is, not, it is not hatred towards the people who commit atrocities so much as love for everyone that they're committing them against. If someone comes in my home and threatens my family, if someone attacks my daughter, and I in turn attack them to keep them from doing that harm, that is not hatred for the intruder. That's love for my daughters. Love for my family. And that's what God is. He is love. And that means we can trust Him to do what's just. And if the solution to bring justice is to wipe out a whole people, a whole people and sometimes it is, I don't think we recognize I don't think we recognize that a city can become that wicked. Then that's what needs to happen. You know, Moses or Abraham rather had that conversation with God in Genesis chapter 18 before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. How wicked could a city be? Well, Abraham starts out God, would you destroy the city if there were 50 righteous people? And God says, no. I mean, if there were 50 righteous people, I would spare it for that. And he says, uh, well, I mean, what about, what about 45? 45, I wouldn't. Well, then how about 40? 30? 20? 10 righteous people. God says, if there were 10 righteous people, I wouldn't do this. That's the reality of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are not 10 people there's 10 people in this room that are righteous presumably there's not 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah God is not going around destroying people where there's just swaths of good people no he said that's it when he destroyed the whole world what's the situation there's 8 people 8 people I don't think we know the depths of wickedness the world can go to yet maybe we're headed that way but we don't, we don't fathom 
what it's like to be in the kinds of societies that some of these people were in when God said, enough, enough. I suppose we will be there one day. Maybe we're closer than I realize. And not only that, but people are not the only thing God loves. Over in Psalm 11, and in several places in the Psalms, we we see this. Psalm 11, and there in verse 7, it says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. Chapter 33, or Psalm 33, and in verse 5, it says there, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Do you see how it melds those two things together? God loves justice and righteousness, and the earth is full of His loving kindness. The reason He loves justice and righteousness is because it's what's best. It's what's best for you and me and our relationships with each other. There's, there's nothing better than those things. And He does show His long-suffering. And He is willing to, to wait. Just as we pointed to Genesis chapter 15 earlier in that conversation, Genesis 15 verse 16, when God says that their wickedness is not full. I'm going to give them time. Over in 2 Peter chapter 5, 2 Peter chapter 5, or excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Peter is making the case that God is not going to spare, is not going to spare those who lead people away from him, those who teach false heresies and turn people away to a, a destructive lifestyle. And in making that case, he says in verse 4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. The idea is if he didn't spare angels who are higher than us, then he's not going to spare us. Then the second part of the argument, verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. One of the points that he makes here is... Don't be fooled by the notion that he hasn't shown up yet. Because there will be people asking that question, that mocking question that Peter brings up. The world's still going on just like it always has. And he says, well, not like it always has. Every once in a while, God does show up. And he says, enough. And one, one time, one more time, he's going to show up and he's going to say, enough. But all this while in between... We've got mercy, we've got time, we've got opportunity. And we need to take advantage of that. He's also willing to, to spare those who appeal to Him. And so even when God pronounces judgment, and understand, in, in a sense, we are all under that judgment. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And so we all stand under that judgment. Well, what's the use then? Well, you appeal to him and he'll make a way. And so we look back there in the book of Joshua and we see in Joshua chapter 6, we talked about that story of Jericho this morning. But there is an exception to the story of Jericho, to the destruction of Jericho and all of Canaan. In verse 25, it says, However, Rahab the harlot in her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. 
She has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. It became a part of Israel, is what she did. A harlot. You think, well, who, who would God spare? Only the people who've, who've kept clean? No, anybody who at any time will turn their face to him and say, you are God. And I respect you. And so Rahab gave the response that all of us need to have, which is, what do I do? That's, that's the response. All through the Bible you see that question asked, what must we do? And she asked that question. The answer, put a scarlet cord out of your window and get everybody in your house. You want to be safe. And so what does she do? Just that. Just that. And she's saved from the destruction. God even makes room for people who come to Him imperfectly at first. If, they, if, if they're showing, I, I believe that, that even the, the, the smallest faith can grow into, into something real. I think that's what we see with Rahab. Her, her approach is imperfect. I mean, she tells lies to get the, the spies out of her household. I don't know that that's ultimately the best way. Certainly being a harlot's not the best way to go about things. I assume she quit all of that. Later, we see a story of the, the Gibeonites. And they deceive Israel. Why do they do it though? Because they believe who God is. And they believe that He is a destroyer of those who rebel against Him. And so, and so they come. And, and because of their deception, they're told, you're going to be servants now. You're going to be water carriers, wood toters. And they say, fine by us. We just want to live. You see that? You see that humbleness on their part? Even They're willing to accept the judgment so that they can ultimately have the mercy. That's what we have to do. We come to God, and, and maybe that's a little bit like Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman who comes and asks for something from Jesus, and he says it's not good to give what is meant for the children to the dogs. He said, I'll take the crumbs. Give me whatever you got. I think that's the Gibeonites. They're saying, well, well, you're going to have to be slaves. Totally fine with us. We don't want what the rest of these Canaanites are about to have. And so they're saved. And many generations later, they are still in Israel. Not only are they still in Israel, but God, but God is defending them and their honor in Israel generations later into the United Kingdom. And he says, don't you remember you made a covenant with those people? Saul may have forgotten it, but God didn't. And so, I just think I think God's mercy is is so easily overlooked. And again, we'll we'll think about that some more tomorrow night. But what, what the hardest hardest part of um, the aspect of God destroying the nations is the part where the the children. What about the innocent people? First of all, we have to start from the standpoint of there's probably less innocent people than we think. We throw that word around a lot. We say, oh, they killed so-and-so, so, so many innocent people. I'm not saying necessarily they were guilty of something worthy of whatever happened to them in, in some shooting or something, but I think sometimes we throw that word innocent out a little bit loosely. In one sense, we are none of us innocent. But there certainly would have been some people who would have been destroyed in Canaan who would have been innocent. That would be children. And they were. 
They were wiped out along with the rest of the Canaanites. That's part of the most uncomfortable aspect here. In Joshua chapter 6 and verse 21, they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, the ox and the sheep, the donkey, with the edge of the sword. Uh, the same thing is, is told us in, Matthew, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 when Saul is told to go utterly destroy the Amalekites. The infants are mentioned specifically. How do you reconcile that and a good God? Well, I reconcile it this way. First of all, to the person, the atheist, who's asking that question. I ask them, well, I, I would say this, how dare you? How dare you come to God and you pretend to be angry that God is killing children. Atheists don't get to say that. Sam Harris says this, Many of us consider human fetuses in the first trimester to be more or less like rabbits, having imputed to them a range of happiness and suffering that does not grant them full status in our moral community. He would also contend that age and mental capability, physical ailment, should all be considered as reasons to end the life, not only of human babies, but humans in general of any age. And here are people who don't believe in an afterlife, who believe in no reward, no comfort, no joy after this life is over, and they are cavalier with all the ways that they say and reasons that they say life should be taken. And then they come to God who is all-knowing and who has knowledge of what will happen to people after they die. And He doesn't have the right to figure out when life should be taken. Who do they think they are? The arrogance. But consider the difference between the atheist view and God's view. In Matthew chapter 19... Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 14. With regards to children, it says in verse 13, some children were brought to him, to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus says, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I know that when God sends men to go destroy a nation and even kill the children, it's not because of what He thinks of the children. He loves the children. And with regards to that, we, we, we look over at Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. And verse 23. After David's son is taken, David's child is taken, the, the child of adultery that was born from Bathsheba. That child dies after several days of fasting and David gets up and goes on about his business and the people marvel. And David says, now he has died. Why should I fast? I cannot bring him back again, but I will go to him. But he will not return to me. David knows where children go when they leave this world. And he has confidence about that, and we can too. And so God looks down and He sees a terrible, wicked nation 
full of men, women, and children. And the men and the women are destroyed for their own wickedness and for their own responsible actions. And the children, what, what about them? They are where they will never hurt again. Can you imagine growing up as a child in one of those societies? Those are the people that were taking their children and putting them into a metal furnace and burning them to death. You think they're worse now? No, they're in bliss. There's no more pain for them. And so God, God has been very tender towards those children. And so I don't worry about them. And I don't worry about the justice of that situation. It is ironic, again, that the very people who say that abortion should be committed to keep children from having to go through difficulties in this life are the very ones who wouldn't turn around and see the possibility of that very thing. Here's the difference. God can make that call. You and I cannot. He knows and we do not. And we must yield that decision to the one who holds those lives in his hand. But he is just. And he is right. And he is merciful even in this action. There's a lot of different ways that people approach this. One of the ways people approach the, the destruction of Old Testament peoples is to say that this is Israel not really understanding God. They're kind of writing their own history and they're just using God to justify what they're doing. In which case, we can trust nothing in the Old Testament, you see. It's not really inspired. The other way that people go about that is just to say it's a, it, it is inspired, but it's sort of an exaggeration, right? In which case, we can't really trust the Bible anymore. And so in one way or another, they're taking at least half the Bible, if not the whole Bible, and just saying, let's just not pay attention to this anymore. And that's no good. If you're going to embrace God, you've got to embrace Him start to finish. Because, you, you know, the, the very basis on which He has authority is right there in chapter 1. I created the whole thing. And right there is where it starts. If that's exaggeration, then so is His authority. But I want all of it. And so I accept that, and I accept His judgments, one after another, as well as His mercies. And you can't have His mercies without His judgments. Because they... It is through His justice that He provides us with mercy. We don't serve a bloodthirsty God. We serve a God who is slow to anger. Right? Relenting of evil. But we do serve a God who wants justice. And He will have it. And He will have it at the price of your blood or at the price of His Son's blood. What an incredible thing that the offer is even there. Because we don't deserve it. And so, this destruction of Jerusalem as, as, the, as the judgment of any people that we read about in the Old Testament, as Peter takes those judgments, we should take those judgments, and they're held up as warnings that God is serious. He means what He says. And so you come to Him and recognize that the nature of His judgment is universal, but also the availability of God's mercy is universal. And we see that in every one of those judgments too. And so wouldn't you want to escape that kind of judgment? You don't want to be with the people of Canaan. Come like Rahab saying, what do I need to do? And we'll help you. 
If there's any way we can help you this evening, why don't you come forward while we stand and while we sing. There's a great day coming. A great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? by and by, but its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready?
Father, we pray that each and every person here, each and every breath that we take, each and every day, we spend in reflection, Father, of our lives that we have lived. And we look to you and the standards that you give us, Father, and we are honest with ourselves. That, Father, we look in our lives and we see, Father, that we are not what we need to be. We are not the children that you wish to have, Father. We pray, Father, that our hearts will be pricked in such a way that we do ask, what shall we do? And that, Father, we live in that existence of what shall we do each and every day. So, Father, we will not find ourselves in the end standing before you with judgment upon us, knowing that we have nothing that we can do. Father, we thank you for the love that you show us. We thank you for the word that you have given us. We thank you for you revealing yourself to us, Father, in such beautiful and wonderful ways that we can even look at creation and see the love that you give us, Father, but you've gone far beyond that. You have even promised, Father, that you would take care of the menial things of life and we would just turn our hearts and minds to you. We thank you so much, Lord, for all of the things that you give us each and every day, for the representations of your love that you give us, Father, the people that we have in our lives that we care about, the people that we can reach out to, Father, within your name and tell them about you, what it is that you have in store for them, if they will just return the love that you have given to them, Father. We thank you for this place that you give us, Father, here in Garden City, that we have so many brothers and sisters in here that have a like-minded faith. Moreover, Father, we thank you for all over the world, brothers and sisters, that gather together in your name to worship you. We thank you for having that. Father, we know that we fail you on many occasions. Each and every day, the people that look to love you, Father, we fail you in the shortcomings that we each have within our lives. Let us be honest about those things that there are done for him. Save your son. We pray, Father, that we would lean upon your grace and mercy. That we would have the hope within us, Father, with joy, knowing that we try each and every day to move closer to the image of your Son. We pray, Father, that you will help us in that. That you would give us courage and that you would give us wisdom to understand what it is that you would have us to do. For each and every one of us, Father, who walks a different life, we must live the lives that we live, Father, but just like fingerprints or hairs on our head, we are different. But yet you love each and every one of us, Father, and you know each hair that's on every head that is here that lives in this time and place. Father, we yield to you. We know that your will is the only will that we should seek out, never of our own. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would just help us, Father, and forgive us of our sins that we have. Help us to always look to you, Father, for all the answers that we seek in life. Be with us, Father, as we separate from this place. Go with us, dear Lord, and help us to stay strong. Help us to speak your word and your name. And Father, help us to always stay within your grace and within your mercy. Be with us as we each go to our respective places, Father. We ask that you would guide, guard, and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you. 